Okay, this is Ask Me Anything, episode number 10, for podcast supporters only. First, thank you all again for your support. You are making everything I'm doing possible. And it is incredibly gratifying to be able to do this work and to have an audience that actually wants to hear these conversations. And I'm more than happy to take your questions here. And you should know there'll be more things coming online that will be there to reward you for your support of the show. Now that we have the new website up, once we get all the glitches out of the system, we will begin to develop new things. As you know, the app is increasingly a priority, and there will be more news on that front soon. And again, supporters will get the app for free. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right in here. My philosophy in doing these questions is to just do this extemporaneously. I haven't read these in advance. I'm just starting with the most popular, but I will jump around, I think, to controversial and then maybe just look at a few of the recent ones, and uh, I'll see how far I get. In his book, God is Not Great, Christopher Hitchens wrote very critically of meditation. Did you ever try to convince him that he was wrong? I don't remember ever attempting that. I actually don't remember precisely what he said about meditation. I, I know he was super critical of the Dalai Lama, and some of that criticism I understand, some of it I push back against in my book Waking Up. Christopher didn't know much about Buddhism or meditation, really. So anything he would have said there was not from a position of experience. Buddhism, obviously, as a religion, can be criticized like any religion for its dogmatism and claims made on faith, but the claims that people make about their experience through meditation are not faith claims. And this is what I ran into recently with Lawrence Krauss on stage in New York, and the conversation probably should continue there. When I talk about experiencing, say, a loss of a sense of self in meditation, he thinks that's analogous to a Christian saying, well, you don't understand, I experience God, right? Or I know Jesus directly in my heart. It's a completely non-analogous set of claims. Christians and religious people in general are making claims about events in history and about the origins of books and about the existence of invisible beings elsewhere in the cosmos who had a hand in creating the cosmos. These are cosmological claims. These are claims about magical powers. You don't have to overreach in that way to cash out the core propositions of, in this case, Buddhist meditation. Again, lots of crazy claims to be made by Buddhists in the service of Buddhism. They believe in magic and rebirth and certain sacred and pseudo-histories. But I'm not endorsing any of that. I'm saying that if you pay attention to your mind closely enough, and that is what I'm calling meditation, you can notice that the self that you think you have isn't there. And everything else is still there. Experience, consciousness, thoughts, intentions. But there's no one in the center of it. And Hitch, it seems to me, didn't know anything about that through direct experience, which, it should be said, most people don't. 
right? This is a fairly esoteric area of inquiry, and it's only a certain percentage of meditators who have this experience in any kind of clear way. So meditation is esoteric, and succeeding to the point of actually being able to feel what consciousness is like prior to concepts, including a concept of a self, that's more rarefied still. But no, Hitch and I never really grappled with that. Next question. Sam, what do you think the most ethical response is to encountering homeless people asking for money? That's an interesting question. It really, it depends on the situation for me. There are times where I feel handing out money is encouraging bad behavior, and therefore I wouldn't want to do it. I mean, there are certainly aggressive panhandlers who make life really unpleasant for other people, and there are people who ask for money who really seem like they could be doing some profitable work. This is not somebody who seems to be suffering from mental illness or some disability. It seems to be somebody who's just living on the fringe and, you know, they may be a substance abuser, but they're young and not especially disposed to change what they're doing. And then you see people who really are just profoundly unlucky, and it's hard to size people up with a glance and know exactly what you're justified in thinking about them, but I've gone through just very different responses to homeless people. Having spent a lot of time in India and Nepal, I gave kind of compulsively to the beggars I met there, only to discover that begging was a kind of industry which can be monstrously unethical. You have people who are disfiguring and hobbling their children so as to make them more effective beggars. You need to know what you're supporting, or at least one should want to know what one is supporting when just handing out money. I think for homelessness, as for many problems, the real remedy will have to be societal. And I give money to various charities that help the homeless. So you want social workers and people who are trained to deal with the kinds of people one meets on the streets to be reaching out and making sure they're getting medical attention. And it should also be said that there is food in all of our major cities for the homeless. People are not starving to death on the sidewalks of America. The problem of homelessness is terrible. And in major cities, there there can be tens of thousands of people who are homeless. Many people are only homeless for a month or so and just need to be propped back up. But it really is something that I respond to intuitively in the moment. And the filter for me is, who am I helping here and and what kind of behavior am I encouraging? I'm really not a fan of the people who stop traffic or wandering in the middle of the road and making it more likely that they or someone else is going to get run over by a car. So I pick my moments more carefully, but I, I also do hand out money from time to time. As I said, I think it's more important to support charities that are doing good work in this area. And actually, my first book club event with Steven Pinker at the Dolby in Hollywood, 25% of the net proceeds will go to charity, and I think that will be a charity 
serving the homeless in Los Angeles. What is your view on prostitution and pornography? Should it be regarded as immoral or not? Does its criminalization have any positive effects? Well, let me take the last part first. I don't think its criminalization has any positive effects. I think both prostitution and pornography should be legal, except for those cases where someone is being coerced into being a prostitute or being in a pornographic film. And those situations obviously occur. So if you're talking about the trafficking of minors or the enslavement of people in these industries, well, then obviously crimes are being committed and it's totally unethical and people should go to prison for that. But if you're not talking about people being forced to do anything against their will, and granted there are gradations of coercion here, you know, if you're you're talking about people who are addicted to drugs, who are engaged in either of these domains to get their next fix, well, then that's, we can wonder what consent means there. But taken from the other side, there clearly are legitimate and ethical versions of prostitution and pornography. Now, it's not to say that I think being a prostitute or acting in X-rated films is a likely way to maximize your well-being. I'm sure most of the people in these industries are there for fairly unlucky reasons, you know, not having better options in life or having quirks in their psychology that make these professions seem like the best use of their time. But I can't say that across the board it would be a bad thing for someone to be in either of those industries. It's just Again, it comes down to consent. It comes down to what someone's experience is. I've heard people in both industries interviewed where these women, I mean, we're, we're thinking of women generally when we wonder about the ethics of this, where these women sound empowered and fully in possession of their wits and doing precisely what they want to do, largely because it's, it's an efficient way for them to make money. So. But not even just that. I mean, the, you, you can hear women interviewed who are just so into sex and into the service of what they're doing that, you know, this is what they legitimately want to do, or at least this is what they say. But generally speaking, I think most people are kind of unlucky to have found their way into that as a career. And I think being a, a John or a consumer of pornography does carry with it some ethical obligation not to be supporting something that is maximizing someone else's suffering. One problem with pornography is that it's not always clear that the people involved are especially happy doing what they're doing. If you're consuming something that was made in some ways under coercion, that's a bad thing to be a participant in, whether you know it or not. So it's these Industries are shady for a reason, but no, I think criminalization is the wrong thing and hurts the people working in these fields who we would otherwise want to protect. Criminalization is not good for prostitutes, as far as I know. It doesn't make any sense for pornography in general, because it really is a free speech issue. Again, assuming everyone participating 
is doing it, having fully consented. But uh, more generally, I think access to pornography poses some ethical concerns, whether the pornography is produced in an ethical way or not. For many people, it does screw up relationships. And who knows what the effect is on teenagers and, and younger kids who get access to these images. I simply don't know what it would be like to be a 13-year-old given instantaneous access to imagery that in a previous generation would have only been found inside the brain of the Marquis de Sade. The stuff that people have access to online offers quite a range of the human sexual experience, healthy and otherwise, and the idea that kids are being educated about their own sexuality by watching hours and hours and hours of adult pornography, that's a little disturbing. I can't imagine that will produce the kinds of young adults that the world wants, or that even that those people will want to be in the end. So pornography is not necessarily ethically neutral. People have lots of problems with pornography, and I'm sure people have lots of problems with prostitution. So this is a, an ethically interesting and somewhat fraught area, but as with drugs, criminalization is an incredibly coarse and short-sighted attempt at a remedy. Next question. Hey Sam, what podcast do you personally listen to? Are there a few staples or do you jump around depending on what you're currently thinking about? Well, I've mentioned a few that I listen to, which I still listen to. I don't listen to every episode of my favorite podcast, but I listen to many, and it's often dependent on the guest that is there. But I listen to uh, Joe Rogan. He often has people on who I want to hear. Also, Tim Ferriss and Jocko Willink. Uh, those guys are all friends at this point, and they're great podcasts. I listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History when he brings out something new. I mean, his podcasts are really like audiobooks, but he only brings out an episode every few months or so. But he's fantastic. And then I listen to some of these series that get highly promoted. It was an eight or ten part series on the Heaven's Gate cult, which was pretty interesting. I've listened to some of the, the other crime-based ones, which are good. Serial and In the Dark, I remember, was good. I listened to The Daily, the New York Times podcast. I listened to Mark Maron's podcast as well. It's often guest-dependent. There are now just too many podcasts to listen to every episode of every one that interests you, but it is a fantastic medium because there is no time limit, which changes the nature of the conversation. and. Being audio, you can just work it into the rest of your day, whether it's a commute or a workout. You know, I find there's often 90 minutes in my day that would not otherwise exist, but is the perfect time for a podcast or an audiobook. I listen to something every day at this point. Okay. Economics seems to be a conspicuously absent topic on your show insofar as it relates to ethics and the science of well-being. Have you considered having more economists on your show, such as Brian Kaplan, Tyler Cowen, Steve Levitt, Roland Fryer, or Thomas Piketty? 
Yeah, I have considered that. I'm going to have Robin Hansen on at a live event. He's joining me in Denver, I think, in a couple of weeks. So you'll hear that audio here. He's a very interesting guy. Brian Kaplan has also reached out. He has a new book, which I haven't read yet, but I will look at that, and that's a conversation that may happen. Tyler Cowan has been on my radar for quite some time, so yeah, I I will speak. I think, as you suggest, it's a very important discipline, so more to come there. What is your process for developing your opinion on a subject, especially new topics that you've had little education on? Well, I, I think it's probably like most other people's. I read relevant books, I listen to relevant podcasts, I watch documentaries, I try to find the the best sources of expertise on whatever topic it is. I pay attention to who has criticized those sources and how credible they seem. I just kind of wade in and see how my understanding of the topic grows. One of the pleasures of having a podcast is that it lets me do that in a fairly spontaneous and free way because having a conversation with somebody is unlike writing an article, much less a book, about the topic, having done research. You don't have to have your view of the topic worked out to have a conversation. And I I usually like to have some sense of what I think going into most of these conversations. I don't want to go in completely green and then just not know when somebody is not making sense. But some of the conversations I've had have really been about things that I know very little about, and I don't pretend otherwise. I'm just interested. And one of the great things about having a podcast like this is I can just invite someone on to talk, and they're happy to do it rather often, and I can just see where the conversation takes us. Touching on the last question, that would be more or less what I would be doing on the topic of economics. I, you know, I'm not an economist. So having conversations with people trained in the discipline would be an education for me as well, and, and I, I'll be happy to do that. Although it, it must be said that economics is one of these disciplines where there's so little agreement about even basic principles. It doesn't strike one as a mature discipline. There's a kind of a radical controversy there that is not true in most other areas of science. You can get trained economists diametrically opposed on the most basic questions about free trade or immigration or the consequence of raising taxes or lowering them. And, you know, the fact that one economist can describe a even a Nobel laureate on the other side of one of those debates as a total ignoramus you know, that's the state of the field, as far as I can tell, as a layperson. So it doesn't inspire a tremendous amount of confidence, but no doubt somebody knows something there, and I'll be happy to have more conversations in that area. Next question. What are your thoughts regarding universal health care from a moral and ethical framework? So this is one of these questions where having a firm grasp of economics would be useful, but I don't think you have to be an economist to have a strong opinion about this. I think one thing should be clear, that there is a certain degree of bad luck that we should want to protect our neighbors from. There's no telling when you you will be the 
unluckiest person on your street. And I think we all want some insurance against that happening to us or those closest to us, if only for selfish reasons. And I think for reasons of compassion and basic human decency, we should want a safety net below which our neighbors and even distant strangers cannot fall. And then the only debate is, where do you want to put that net? And I think the, the, the minimum standard of living that we would want to see unlucky people forced to endure should increase as the world becomes wealthier, and the world is becoming wealthier. The pie is growing, and we should be less and less patient with extreme poverty or exposure to preventable illness and things like homelessness and illiteracy and other kinds of disadvantage. So when you're talking about universal health care, we do have universal health care. We just have the most expensive and idiotic form of it, which is anyone can walk into an emergency room and get extremely expensive health care when they most need it. They can't get preventative care. They can't get maintained by an annual checkup, but they can go into an ER in extremis and rack up $100,000 in medical bills in any given year, and we all pay for that. So even if you just want to be selfish, you should want to figure out some more efficient way to help people. And I think even if you are radically selfish, you must realize that you don't want to be confronted by sick and starving people on the sidewalk when you go about your day. Just what sort of society do you want to be living in? I think you want to be living in one where people can't fall through the cracks entirely. Again, even if you're selfish. Now, most of us, in addition to being selfish, actually care about other people's suffering. And that only gives more impetus to this idea that, that you would want some minimum standard of universal health care. I love your idea to include a This Changed My Mind button on social media. Can you suggest tools or methods to continually challenge our beliefs and opinions in constructive ways? What does current science say about addressing confirmation bias in ourselves and others? Well, current science certainly suggests that confirmation bias is a thing. And it's a problem that all of us have. And to just be aware of it and to be surrounded by smart people who are also aware of it is a great corrective. And in science in particular, a vigilance around confirmation bias is more or less systematically preserved, especially when you're talking about hypothesis-driven science. It's hard to get away with confirmation bias for too long. It's not to say it doesn't happen, but it's, it's something that people are well aware of, and I think it's increasingly important for all of us to be thinking about these kinds of biases. And when you look at the fact that you tend to want to hear the opinions of people who share your opinions, this echo chamber effect that we're all experiencing online, it's good to mix things up from time to time. Politically, it's good to read from both ends of the spectrum. And 
it's good to find the best arguments against positions that you hold. It's good to be interested when very smart people come down on the other side of a controversy from the one you're on. One of the most frustrating things for me politically in the last year has been that the defenders of Trump that I have managed to find do not have the kinds of arguments in his defense that, in my view, remotely justify support. Many people are frustrated with my position on Trump, and they see it as an expression of my own political bias. I really don't see it that way. And the fact that I can find many conservatives who share my view of Trump is a sign that this is not a matter of political ideology. On that one issue, it's hard to see what could change my mind. I would have to be argued out of my view of who Trump is, or I'd have to be argued out of my view that the norms he has broken were good norms. You'd have to argue that having any dignity in the office of the presidency is a bad thing. Honesty on the part of a president is a bad thing. Personal probity is a bad thing. Being well-informed is a bad thing. Having some larger vision that seems ethically wise and forward-looking about where the country should go, that's a bad thing. You'd, You'd have to knock all of those down or somehow convince me that Trump is not at all as he seems. I don't see how that's possible. But I guess anything is possible. And if you have a recommendation for who that person is who could do that to me, well, I certainly would want that man or woman on the podcast. But generally speaking, considering the extremes, it's worth doing. And you don't need to spend a lot of time on the fringe to figure out what's wrong with it. But it is good to understand why people believe extreme things, especially those points of view that you disagree with. And when we're reasoning more toward the middle, when we're, we're finding ourselves wondering what is true about more ordinary topics, it's very important to be dealing with the best version of the other side's argument. It's important to be able to restate the other side's argument in a way that they would accept, and then to be dealing with that case, which is to say steel manning rather than straw manning, a distinction that Eric Weinstein made on the podcast. And I I certainly try to do that, but all of us can be guilty of straw manning. You know, we owe it to ourselves and to the people we're trying to persuade to be dealing with the best versions of the other case. And when I fail to do that, I certainly like to hear about it. So do not stop pointing that out to me. Okay, next question. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about the concept Brett Weinstein mentioned of metaphorical truths. How can these type of truths, factually incorrect but functionally useful, be reconciled with a scientific worldview? Uh, Well, that's a great question. And uh, actually, I thought more about it since that podcast with Brett. And uh, actually, one of you, a listener, emailed with an example of a metaphorical truth that really is perfect for this discussion far better than Brett's example of the 
porcupine that can shoot its quills, or, or the belief that porcupines can shoot their quills. The new example is this. Anyone who has spent any time working with guns knows that there is a, a safety principle, which is usually communicated as treat every gun as though it were loaded, or even all guns must be considered loaded. And this extends to every case in which you handle a firearm, even when you know it isn't loaded because you just unloaded it, right? Or you just saw someone unload it. So this is kind of a, an enforced redundancy of checking and rechecking whether or not the gun you're handling is loaded. So if you were going to hand a firearm to me, if you know what you're doing, you would check to see if it's loaded. You would pull back the slide if it's a semi-automatic, and you'd, you'd inspect the chamber. You would make sure the, the magazine was out. You would look into the magazine well to see that there's no magazine in there, even if you had just removed it. And it's kind of a, kind of a ritual behavior. And then you would hand it to me, and I would do the same. Having seen you just do that, I would inspect the gun in those same ways. Considering it loaded, and to consider it loaded is to take all the precautions you would take if it were in fact loaded. So you want to make sure the barrel isn't pointed at anything that you don't want to risk killing. So you take these precautions, and yet it is a fiction most of the time. Most of the time that you're doing this, you are dealing with a gun that is unloaded because you have ensured that it's unloaded, and all of your subsequent checks are redundant. But this redundancy saves lives. It's an incredibly useful thing to do. And a failure to behave this way around guns reliably gets some number of people horribly injured or killed. The kinds of, quote, accidents you hear about with firearms are symptoms of negligence. These are not accidents like a brick fell off the side of a building and hit someone in the head because gravity did it. No, these are people who haven't paid sufficient attention to the loaded gun that they're handling. So this is a metaphorical truth that is, is really worth maintaining. But the important thing to realize here is that you don't have to believe anything false to do this. If at any point in my handling a gun that I've committed to treat as loaded, if you said to me, but do you really think it's loaded at this point? I would have a very firm conviction one way or the other based on evidence. It's not that I would be delusional about the status of the gun. And if you asked me to bet money, if you said, well, listen, you've just passed this gun back and forth twice. Your friend inspected it. You received it, inspected it, inspected it again, and passed it back to your friend, who, if he does anything with it now, is also going to inspect it again, because you're both committed to treating guns as though they're loaded. But if I were willing to accept a wager of a million dollars that this gun is, at this point, unloaded, would you place that bet? Of course, it would be the easiest million dollars to win ever, because at that point, I know the gun is unloaded. These are two different modes of thinking. This, quote, metaphorical truth is not a propositional claim about the state of the world. It's an algorithm for behavior. And there may be many other things like this that are worth adopting, but you don't have to adopt them 
in an unscientific frame of mind. There are good reasons for behaving as if every gun is loaded. It saves lives. And if you wanted to extend this way of thinking to other behaviors that were more classically religious, say, so to behave as if the law of karma were true, that everything you do and intend is going to lead to some future result, whether you get caught for it or not, or to behave as if everything happens for a reason, right? Everything in your life has been put there to teach you some kind of lesson or has been given to you as a a circumstance for growth, right? Everything is a test. I think you could do that. I think you could do that very much in the spirit of all guns are loaded. I don't think you actually have to believe anything on insufficient evidence or anything on faith. I think you can just decide to view things through that lens. And that's what gets fishy when you're talking about the way someone like Jordan Peterson seems to be talking about religion and religious truth or truth at all. I think we have to have a very clear, realistic picture of truth. And it's in that context that we can think hypothetically or metaphorically and derive some benefits in that way. And there are certainly other metaphorical truths that are not literally true, but they are truths that we endorse and for good reason and to good effect. And I think one of these that I've spoken about on the podcast before is the idea that all lives are equally valuable. I think it's very good for us to act as if all lives were equally valuable. I think that's a norm that we should endorse, but it is a kind of metaphorical truth. It's not literally true. There are people who we care more about than others. Personally, we care more about the people we love who are closest to us than distant strangers. Even societally, even as a matter of policy, we take greater steps to secure important people from harm than we take for unimportant people. I don't know who the most uncontroversially popular person on earth is, but pick your favorite movie star or sports hero. The more famous and beloved, the better. And imagine that person taken hostage. It's irrational to think that there won't be a greater outpouring of concern in that case than in the generic hostage case. There will be more resources brought to bear in negotiating or in attempting a rescue. And that is tantamount to saying that some lives are worth more to us than others. This is a metaphorical truth that we violate all the time, but it's still good to create policies that are driven by the metaphorical truth, by the norm of all lives are equally valuable. Hope that made some sense. Next question. Do you have any thoughts on suicide? I think suicide is something that in certain cases is totally understandable. And I think there are people who have committed suicide in ways and for reasons that don't really pose much of an ethical problem or really a problem at all. I think assisted suicide in the case of terminally ill people who have no chance of recovery and are suffering terribly and want to be put out of their misery 
I think that is something that should be legal, and it's an incredibly important thing to figure out how to legalize. It's just, in that case, an act of pure compassion. But in, in many other cases, suicide is a shockingly irresponsible and hostile act. You know, there are suicides that are akin to murders at the level of their ethics, where someone has just ended their life in the most sudden and grotesque way as a way of lashing out at the people who they think failed them. And undoubtedly, there's every variant in between. So it's, it's a little bit like asking what my thoughts are on violence. There are totally legitimate uses of violence and totally illegitimate ones. There are acts of violence that are synonymous with evil and acts of violence that are synonymous with pure heroism and virtue. And uh, suicide more or less maps onto that continuum. It really is it's the ultimate act of self-violence. Obviously, it's regrettable that anyone is in a position to have to think about it seriously, but if you can't imagine a situation where suicide would seem appropriate, I think you're not thinking hard enough. Lives can get unendurable, and hopefully there'll be some remedy for that one day. I think painkillers that work perfectly would be an amazing breakthrough. Antidepressants that work perfectly would be an amazing breakthrough, and the two of those combined would obviate certainly most thoughts of suicide, and there's no reason to think we won't get there at some point. You seem to be very good at emotional regulation, presumably as a result of regular meditation, but is it possible for someone to be too regulated? There's a bit of a flat affect that some ultra, quote, zen people seem to have, and you, to some degree, seem also unflappable. E.g., it's hard to imagine you ever yelling. But do you worry about or agree that a case could be made for the value of more expressiveness? I certainly think emotional expressiveness has its utility, and even anger, expressions of anger, have their utility. And this is something I've said before where I, I wish I could emulate Hitch more than I can and become theatrically angry at various moments in debates. I think it's fun, and I don't, I don't think it is unethical. And it's at times useful, but that's not to say that I don't lose it sometimes. I can get very uptight and very cranky. I complain a lot to my wife. She would be the first to tell you if she were on this podcast. But the, the real virtue of meditation for me is not that you never feel these negative emotions, but that you do get a handle on them very, very quickly. You can decide how long you want to stay in that state. Is it useful to be angry for another minute or another hour? And when you're paying attention, you can see that the half-life of these emotions is very, very short. The only way to stay angry is to keep thinking the thoughts that keep you angry. So you can get off the ride very, very early once you have some skill in mindfulness. The place where I expressed anger most clearly was when I was on the Secular Talk podcast with Kyle Kalinske. I think that's the podcast. Anyway, the, the title I gave it was Welcome to the End of My Patience. 
So that's out there. That's me being as angry as I have let myself be in a conversation. But again, I was I was aware of doing it, and I decided I decided to bring that energy because it it felt warranted, and it was kind of an experiment in communication. It may be, in fact, a liability of meditation practice in some ways. If if it's a bad thing to be too even, it's certainly possible to be really even. You listen to Joseph Goldstein talk, and he's super even. So for better or worse, that's where uh, my sympathies have sent me. Okay, next question. You once characterized moderate religion as the shade under which religious extremism luxuriates. Given how genuine bigots erupt in applause whenever you make noise about Islam, do you think a similar charge can be leveled against you? That's an interesting question, put that way. But I don't think so, because you just have to follow the conversation long enough. What is the totality of what I say about Islam versus the totality of what a moderate religious person says about their religion? The problem with moderate religion is that it protects the very principle of faith, in particular faith in revelation, that is guaranteed to give you some significant extremism as long as you deem it legitimate. Because the extremism is actually in the books, right? So if you're going to say that certain books were written by God and that it's indecent to challenge that claim, well then you're just handing this operating system to billions of people, some percentage of whom will be made extreme by it. And that's what moderate religious people tend to do. But when you look at what I say about Islam, and what I say about religion in general, and dogmatism in general, and sectarianism in general, and tribalism in general, and bigotry in general, then any person who's narrowly going to fixate on what I say about Islam to use that as a reason to be bigoted, that actually represents a misunderstanding of my argument. My argument against Islam is against specific ideas. It has absolutely nothing to do with immigration, much less immigration of brown-skinned people. It has nothing to do with being culturally xenophobic, you know, not wanting strange foods on the menu or strange music on the radio. So anyone who would use my criticism of Islam as some piece of support for you know, white nationalism, say, just doesn't understand what I'm arguing about or for. It doesn't seem analogous to me. Moderate religious people tend to deceive themselves and others about how crazy and divisive religion has been and will be again if you only give it a chance. They tend to be confused about the actual boundaries of science and intellectual honesty and how those come up against the sorts of claims they want to make about God and the afterlife and faith. So, interesting question, but I think it's actually a false analogy. You speak so eloquently. Did you take any specific steps in order to acquire that skill that you can share with us? Besides constantly reading books and other well-written media, how can we better train ourselves to speak with such fluidity? 
Well, the truth is, I don't speak with such fluidity, or I certainly don't always speak with much fluidity. And I speak slowly, right? I actually can't speak quickly. Listen to somebody like Ben Shapiro or Russell Brand. There are people who speak quickly, and sometimes I'm slower than others, but I actually cannot speak quickly. It's a kind of motor insufficiency. You could give me a script, I could memorize my lines, I could know exactly what I'm going to say, and I simply cannot get the words out as fast as Ben Shapiro's average utterance. And I can assure you meditation probably hasn't helped that problem, but it's not something I can do. So for better or worse, I am a slow talker. And sometimes I put things quite well, and sometimes I don't. I'm happy that many of you find me eloquent and and are happy to listen to my podcast, but I often find stretches of my speech leaving a lot to be desired. And when I see my speech transcribed, it's not nearly as good as good writing. And that is true of virtually everyone, no matter what kind of speaker they are. I consider myself a work in progress as a speaker, and as far as how anyone can become better at speaking, it is, as you suggest, really a matter of reading and listening to good speech. You know, you want to know what words mean, and you want to know how and when to use them. And familiarizing yourself with very clear writing and speaking is a good way to do that. As far as speaking publicly is concerned, and just standing up in front of a crowd, that was something that I used to be very uncomfortable doing. I've blogged about that. If you want to read about overcoming stage fright, uh, you can read my article titled The Silent Crowd on my blog. I have some things to recommend there. But suffice it to say that speaking publicly has never come naturally to me. I'm not a natural performer. I had something to get over, to get comfortable doing it, and I do it now in a mode that is very conversational. Very much the way I'm speaking now is the way I would speak to a crowd of 5,000. That is not the way Martin Luther King Jr. spoke. That's not the way that political candidates who are going to win speak when they get to the podium. Perhaps I could find myself in some situation where I would adopt a different style, but the conversational style is the only one I'm actually comfortable with, and it's, it's not for everyone. For better or worse, what you hear is what you get. What is your view on a solitary life? Well, I think a solitary life can be a happy one. I think there's no question about that. I think we are all ultimately alone in the privacy of our own minds. Even when we're with others, even when we're gazing into the eyes of those we love most in the world, it is your mind that you really have. And if you have a happy mind, you can be happy alone. You can be happy in a cave. You can be happy in solitary confinement. But because we are so deeply social by evolutionary design, there's a lot for most people to overcome to be truly happy in solitude. Doesn't mean that it can't be overcome. Doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to overcome it. I actually think it is. I think you can be much happier with other people if you can also be happy in solitude. 
But the choice to live a, a truly solitary life, to be a kind of hermit, or to not have deep relationships, to not be married, to not have kids, to not have close friends, insofar as anyone really makes that choice, and some people effectively do, I think that can be a happy life, but I think it can more often than not be the sign of some unhappiness, some failure to integrate with others, a failure to find a place in the world that was satisfying. So more often than not, solitude can be very painful for people, and loneliness can be a real problem. So I certainly don't recommend not having friends and not getting married and not having kids and isolating yourself unless you're consciously doing it for a good reason. And that reason would have to be that you think you will connect to something deeper that way. You will be happier that way. You'll be of more service to humanity ultimately that way. So it would have to be some version of the, the contemplative project to be truly solitary and happy, I think. Otherwise, I think in most cases, it'll lead to a kind of diminished life. From the perspective of maximizing average human well-being, is there an ethical argument to be made for adopting rather than procreating, so long as there are children in orphanages and foster homes whose lives would be improved by the process? In other words, if a couple has fixed resources allowing them to support a finite number of children, is there a moral justification for reproduction rather than adoption? This is a hard question. I think clearly there is no argument against adoption if that is what you want to do or feel compelled to do. There are kids who need good homes, and if you're in a position to provide a good home for one of them or more, that is about as straightforwardly good an act as can be thought of. Then the question is, is it by comparison bad to have children of one's own, which is to say biological children of one's own? And I think you can make the argument that the weight we put on our biological relatedness, the interest we take in having children that are genetically related to us, that that is something that's worth outgrowing. You could definitely argue that. The question is, will you actually be as happy if you have only adopted children and no biological children? And it could be hard to know. You might be happier because, again, you've done this exquisitely noble thing, or you might be missing some part of the experience of parenthood that you actually want. And it sort of depends on who you are, I think, there. I'm leaving aside the prospect of complication in adoption. If you're adopting a three-year-old from a Chinese orphanage, that three-year-old will have experienced things in the first three years of life that may lead to a, a more difficult integration into your life. There are various critical periods, which, for the most part, you don't want to miss. But, again, the older the child, the more ethically heroic the act of adopting, right? I mean, there are people who've adopted child soldiers who are, you know, 14 and have killed dozens of people. And adopting a child like that is an amazing thing to do. But who knows who you're bringing into your life? It is a kind of roll of the dice, obviously. 
So I wouldn't want to say that adopting is the only ethical way to be a parent, but it's certainly tempting to say that it's more ethical. It is less selfish. That seems fairly straightforward. Again, leaving aside any ways in which the cases are not analogous, I think if you have the same couple who can have children biologically but decide to adopt for reasons of wanting to give a home to a child that needs one, a child who already exists and is suffering for want of such a home, it is hard for me to see that as anything less than more noble than the ordinary way that most of us become parents. And obviously you can have sublime or terrible relationships in either arrangement. So really, in my view, there, there's no argument against adoption, but I wouldn't go so far as to convict anyone who doesn't adopt as unethical. Perhaps one more question here. As a neuroscientist and father, what are your rules for your kids' screen time and video game content? Well, we haven't fully confronted everything on the menu here, as my oldest is only nine. Generally, screen time didn't start at all until they were about two and a half. We might have relaxed that standard, however slightly, with our second daughter, but basically it was zero screen time for the first few years of life. I'm not up to the minute on the research there. I remember there was some research many years ago that suggested screen time was just bad for you, delivered too early. So we kept them away from iPads and the television for the first couple of years. And now uh, I confess we do use television and iPads as babysitters with some regularity. Often there's a half hour in the afternoon after school that both of them watch their favorite shows. We occasionally watch movies with them. My oldest is now using an iPad for school, the utility of which is not entirely clear to me, honestly, but it's part of the curriculum. And she also plays Minecraft. But by comparison with what most Americans are doing, I'm sure they're getting much less screen time than is normal. I think the content is the most important thing. And some content, while it may sound somewhat trashy, can be pretty good. So, for instance, my oldest daughter watched Project Runway with my wife. And it was, it was an amazingly positive experience. By comparison with anything she had watched before, programming meant for kids, it exposed her to an emotionally and ethically rich situation where people are deceiving one another and jockeying for status and experiencing success and failure that was really hitting home. And so it provoked really cool and fun conversations. So to recommend that people watch Project Runway with their kids may seem insane, but it was extremely positive. So it really just comes down to what the effect of the specific content is. And you can't necessarily always know what it'll be in advance. I find a lot of the programming for kids somewhat anesthetizing, but some of it's good. My daughter will tell me things about animals I have never learned as a result of viewing some of these shows. So I don't have an anti-television or anti-film or anti-gaming position, 
but a, a little goes a long way. And I think reading, both reading to your kids and getting them to learn to read and to love doing it, those I think take priority. But you also want them to be digital natives and to learn how to use these tools as kids. So generally, I think it's just the quality of the experience that you want to be paying attention to. And you just want to be sure that too much time isn't given to merely passive and therefore uncreative entertainment. There is something more active about reading. There's certainly something more active about actually making things, writing and drawing and learning to do new things. So you don't want that to get sidelined by too much screen time. Okay, well, I think I'll wrap it up there. Thank you once again for your questions. And needless to say, thank you for your support of the show. You guys are my true audience here. Those of you who are connected enough with what I'm doing that you're actually willing to support this work. I can't tell you how privileged I feel to be in this situation where my reading good books and talking to smart people and thinking through problems and taking various risks in the kinds of conversations I have is being directly supported by an audience that is this engaged. It's amazingly satisfying to be a part of that arrangement. So, until next time, all of you take care, and I'll see you back on the podcast.